This is episode number 165 with Greg McEwen. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. And each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Success 101 Podcast. As always, this is your host, Jared Warren, and I'm so fired up to be here with you guys today. And we're talking today about a subject that I'm pretty passionate about, and that is essentialism. Today, we're talking with my good friend, Greg McEwen, author of the incredible book by the same name, Essentialism, The Discipline of Less. And this is an absolute must listen for you guys who want to ensure that you're maximizing your efficiency, your quality of life, while minimizing all the noise, the screens, the distractions, and all the meaningless in your life that is sucking your productivity. And I want you to start doing that today. I'm so thrilled to have Greg on the podcast. Since this is an episode about minimalism, I'm going to make the sponsorship very quickly today. Two things. Number one, if you want my book, From Success to Significance, all you have to do is log on to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book. And at the promo code, enter in success101. You're going to be able to get the book for free. All I'm asking you to cover is the shipping on that. That way you can follow along in some of the live episodes that I'm doing as you dive into the six vision building activities to get your 2017 in the right place and get your mindset right with setting great habits on vision and goals going forward. Also, I wouldn't be doing you any favors if I didn't mention that the human charger is 20% off. Head over to success101podcast.com forward slash human charger and at the promo code enter success101 to get 20% off the sun in your pocket. These LED earbuds that emit the same spectrum of light as the sun will get you woken up faster, get you onto higher levels of peak performance faster, keep you from pounding so much caffeine or having afternoon drags, and it's amazing for jet lag for those of you who travel around the world. Now, in keeping with the essentialism message and without wanting any further delay, let's jump right into my great conversation with my good friend, Greg McEwen. Greg McEwen, welcome to the Success 101 podcast. So excited to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you ever so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure on this end because as many of my faithful listeners know, I have been in a theme lately of just reducing the noise, something I know you know all about. But I'm also glad for our listeners to hear about this because I think, Greg, this is a huge issue. And obviously, I'd love to open up your brain a little bit and see what the real motivation behind your book was here. But I know for me lately, and a big goal of mine in 2017 is, like I said, you know, for lack of better words, just reduce the noise. I find that there's so much going on out there, so many screens in the face, so many podcasts to download, so many audiobooks to download. And after you do that for a while, you realize even really good things that you're well-intentioned about can just be too much. So as we start down this journey of diving into your book, Essentialism, and I'll link everything up in show notes as well as we talk about here today, But as we dive on into this, please tell us the motivation for the book, what really led you to write this, of everything that you could have written about, of all the subjects out there, and really what essentialism means to you. Well, you know, I mean, essentialism grew out of a tough experience, really. I received an email from uh, my manager at the time. It said Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. And 
Thursday night is when our daughter was born and we're still in the hospital Friday morning. And instead of, instead of just being centered and calm in what was clearly the most important thing to be doing right then, I felt pulled uh, in both directions. And uh, you know, how can I do both? And to my shame, I went to the meeting and afterwards I really learned the simple lesson, right? Like if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. I'd made a fool's bargain. I'd made a trade-off that, that was expensive. And the trade-off I ended up making wasn't the one I wanted to in a very deliberate, conscious way. It was the one that was made by default. And so this coalesced a whole series of observations I had had of the previous uh, you know, years and years of, of observing and working with companies. It coalesced it to, I've got to understand this. Why is it that people do what they do? Why do they end up pursuing things that are less important over the things that they know to be more important? And the output of that was the book, Essentialism, as you've mentioned. Greg, so hindsight is always twenty twenty, and obviously a, a paradigm shift caused you to come out with the information in the book and create the book. And I found that so many people out there can probably relate to you. We can always look back, like I said, hindsight being twenty twenty, and realize that a decision that we made we now regret whether it's family or whether it's, you know, big or small decisions. We always can have times where we look back and regret certain things. But I'm curious what research you found in the book that led you to that conclusion of why people do make those decisions where they pick the things that are less important over the things that are more important, only to look back and say, why in the world did I do that? Because this was such an important thing. What did your research find and what were the findings of that that you now use to teach others with today? I mean, one of the observations that uh, the research found was historical. And there are stages of a belief that has become dominant in our modern society. And it's a belief that up until now doesn't really have a name. The problem with that is that then people can't talk about it, can't observe it in the same way. And so I call it non-essentialism. It has its roots. You have to go, or at least you have to, to, to see its contrast. You have to go back a long way. So in the 1500s, there's three, three phases. And I'm going to give a little bit of a history lesson here. That phase one is 1400s. The birth of the word priority comes into the English language for the first time. What does it mean? The prior thing. The very first thing. One thing, of course, one thing, because it's the first thing. So the word has a clear meaning, clear definition, and it stays utilizing that meaning for the next 500 years, according to Drucker. And only in the 1900s was the term pluralized into priorities. So what does, what does it even mean? I mean, can you have very, very many absolutely first before all other things? And yet haven't right. you seen, heard someone with no sense of irony at all saying, here are my 20 priorities. So clearly something was, was afoot. And what was going on was the Industrial Revolution and the birth of like, the, not the birth, but the acceleration of efficiency before and above all other principles, because it could do tremendous things, efficiency in machines. But it then got applied to humans and it's not the same way there doesn't work the same way. So some of those principles, got try, you tried to apply them back as if humans are machines and work that way. But anyway, that was phase one. Industrial revolution changed our sense of what can be done. And so everyone said, okay, if you can just do more faster than you will, your output will increase. Right. Uh, that's phase one. Phase two was in the post-Second World War. The whole earth has been discombobulated. The Western world has been uh, consumed in this massive conflict. 
And we come back from that and we don't take a year in morning reflection, figure it out, what matters now, what's important now. We don't do any of that. What we did instead, there was a, as part of the industrial complex that had been developing and accelerating through the Second World War, there was a Panem strategy. And basically, Panem is a Latin term. It means circus and bread. It means that instead of people looking at how things are going and whether things are going well or what the problems are, instead of worrying about the state of the body politic, you just are distracted. You know, it's, it's the birth of real, this real age of television comes into force, the age of consumerism. And it's this, it's this circus. And so that was phase two. We were no longer thought of ourselves the same way. We became consumers rather than you know, citizens. And then phase three is one we've all been witness to, which is the last 10 years, as we've shifted from information overload, which we were already in, to opinion overload, as we moved into social, the social media and everybody having a voice and everybody expressing that voice. So that's the historical context for why people today universally feel stretched too thin at work and at home, feel busy but not productive feel their world is, that their day is hijacked by other people's agenda. You see, my experience in the hospital, while that particular thing may be unique to me, the experience is not. The, the sense of things being a little out of control, of having given up a lot of too much control, drip by drip to other people and other forces, is a very real phenomenon for the mass of modern society. That's one of the big things I learned was this historical context. Absolutely. And it's just fascinating work. There's people that go day after day without thinking anything about this, right? There's totally clueless. And I would say that I was probably to that point, you know, some point in life, even before I read your book, but I could still feel that there was this underlying agitation, this underlying stress, this underlying just irritation, whatever you want to fill in the blank with there, that things just weren't right. You can do that when you're younger and it doesn't affect you a ton. But try doing that when you're older and you've got about 10 more balls to juggle on your plate, which, by the way, that does include family and business at a higher level and just so many more things are at risk. And my goal is just to try to help people through the podcast, introduce them to books like yours and introduce them to information to let them know, guys, we don't have to live like this. And in fact, we were not designed to live like this, especially the colonial era where they have dinner at 3 p.m. after having a hard day's work. And what do they do? They go and start reading. They talk. The sun goes down, they light candles, they talk more, they read more, and then they go to bed. And it's such a virtue to be focused then, whereas now it's almost a virtue to be busy. And it's just amazing how getting still and getting quiet is really a reflection of how we were supposed to live. We were not designed to work the way we do now. I'm convinced of it. We were not designed that way. And society's brought it on, but we've brought it on ourselves. And I just wonder, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Is there truly a way with our society and business set up the way it is now is there a way to cut back in 2017? Are we always going to have this initial irritation, this agitation underlying that's always kind of creeping in on us till finally, at least to burnout and fatigue and just noise? It'd be good if I just said, yes, we can do it. And here's the 10 point plan. And I don't know whether that colonial description you just gave us can be done. It's so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, of course, I don't want to pretend that, that there have been no gains either in the interim period, that we've given things up and gained things. And, but, but the idea that one can just pause, that one can stop and read and read and keep reading. And of course, you're not just reading. We talk about that as if it's the same thing. You're, they're reading from wisdom literature. 
they're reading from the best minds that had lived through the Roman era. They're reading the Bible. They're reading literature that has stood the test of time. Right. And that's where their mind is pondering. They're... Now, what I do think we can do is we can start making small changes that start to move in that direction. So I certainly recommend to people that the first thing they do in their day, don't check the phone, don't check social media, don't have the phone by your pillow. Or as uh, I was just on an episode with Steve Harvey, and we did an essentialism life makeover for somebody and, and go to their house, we're doing all the recording, and it turns out that she puts her phone under her pillow at night, <laughs> keeps it there so that if anyone texts, she can respond immediately. I mean, that's, Of course, of course. It's sort of awful, isn't it? Yeah, right. But what we can do is put wisdom literature first. And, you know, so that's what that, this morning and it's every morning. I'm reading that, too. I mean, I'm scripture for me. That's my source of wisdom literature. But I'm reading it. Each of my children, even though the youngest is just eight, oldest is 14. That's the first thing they're doing, too. And they do it separately. And it changes the whole feeling of the house, of the home, of the interactions. Of course, it's not perfect. Of course, you're still waking up and everything, but it still changes it materially. And so you are still reclaiming a certain portion of the wisdom that you're observing and talking about from a different era. And, you know, my wife still reads to the children last thing at night. And that is also from that's from the classics, not scripture, but it's from the classics that they've gone through easily 50 books now. But all of this, you know, the Anna Green Gables series and the I mean, I could go on and on all the different all the different things, black music, all the, all the classic sort of books and and so it is possible to reclaim some of our lost <laughs> lives, but it certainly doesn't happen by default. It's certainly very tricky when in the middle of this conversation you and I are having, I can be distracted, right? I can have some an email and suddenly it's on some other completely different subject I can't even do anything about now. Yeah, that wasn't happening in a colonial setting. You could be where you were. You weren't being asked to think about everything else and be everywhere else. And so I think it's about, it's not about imitating their life. It's about innovating in today's reality. You know, we're not going to put this genie back in the bottle. This is our context and it has certain advantages. But the question is, is can we learn to riff within this world, right? Can we learn to surf this world? The wave of non-essentialism is here, but can we learn to surf it in such a way that we end up getting meaningful life out of it. And I think the answer to that is yes, we can do that. We've got to start with small wins. Uh, I just put together a 21-day essentialism challenge. It's very simple. It ought to be, I suppose. One page, one thing you can do each day to reclaim some of this essentialist inheritance that we have given up without even knowing we were giving it up. There's just this endless desire to make a contribution at the next level. So that means it requires not just doing everything that comes at you right now. Because if you do everything that comes at you right now, there's no space to adjust or pivot into the next thing. And so, you know, six months ago, I was very much grappling with another trade-off moment. I'd like to do both. What are the both? The both is I'd like to do the next book. Because, you know, people are ready for the next book, probably. Is the audience ready for it? And give it another try. Oh, yeah, I like the first one. Let's do the next one. 
the, the eight book agent wants me to do it. The publisher's now ready for me. Absolutely ready, ready to do a deal, ready to get it done. And of course, this pays better than the first. So there's all the incentives are aligned. And of course, I want to. I've, I've spent my whole life wanting to write and teach and give it a lot to be able to do these things. So, so of course, that's next. But but the other thing that I feel pulled to is, you know what? The higher contribution is to stay on the same theme, essentialism, but learn how to do like maybe a TV show that could reach a far bigger, broader audience and in a very rich way as well. So that's pulling on me. And I felt that for a long time that that was really the next thing I needed to do. But, oh, could I do both? I do both. And I keep trying to talk myself into this. So six months ago, I finally make the decision. No, you've got to let, you've got to actually make the sacrifice. Let the book go so that television can come forth. And that's very scary. One because one is so good and certain and the other one is so unknown and so new to me. Oh, yeah. And it just just right after that, that's when Steve Harvey blogs. I read Essentialism. It changed my life. So suddenly, not only did that happen, I had enough space mentally to see it, to notice it, to take advantage of it. And so then we start this conversation, this relationship, and he has me on the show. It's a super, super, you know, segment. But he loved it. I loved it by far the best thing I've ever done media-wise. And that went super well. So now he says, come again. And then simultaneously, one of the two largest, uh, most successful TV and movie talent agencies asks me to come and speak at their annual retreat. So all these agents, you know, who already either love essentialism are now being new to it. So they're saying, oh, I set up these appointments with producers. And I just met with producers in LA yesterday. That's what I was doing yesterday. And I think to myself, are you kidding me that this is six months? Six months from zero to this. And it's just real and it just keeps on going. And I think that that is a form of essentialism as well, that making the trade-offs so that your contribution can increase and you don't just stay at the same level of contribution forever and ever. Yeah, I'm reminded that word reclaim that you're using there. And it just started bringing questions to my mind of how do we frame this? Because if you don't frame it in a healthy way, if you don't frame it properly, in my opinion, you're either going to think you can change this overnight and then be extremely disappointed when you realize that you can't because of the world around us. You haven't set the systems in place. You haven't gone on the 21-day challenge. These sort of things that you're talking about, you just think, hey, it's too much. I've heard some ideas of minimalism or essentialism, and that sounds like the right thing to do. Okay, I'll start that tomorrow. And then you're just completely disappointed. I think the word reclaim, as you use, that's an awesome phrase. But I think the way we have to frame this based on what you're saying is the wave of non-essentialism. How can we make sure that we still live a meaningful and worthwhile life that is not a wasted life? What percentage of our life can we reclaim knowing that much of our life can't be reclaimed, can't put that genie back in the bottle? For some people, that may be extremely disappointing. I think if you understand that when you open your eyes each day and you take on the world, I think you'll be better prepared for it. Yes. And I don't mean to suggest that we can't design a meaningful life. And I don't mean to suggest that ultimately we can't reclaim an enormous amount of it. Maybe we can get all the way, but I just think you get there by degrees. You don't get there in one big jump. But bit by bit, you say, you know, okay, I'm just going to reclaim the first 20 minutes of my day. I'm not giving that up anymore. Right. And then eventually, you know, bit by bit, right? So in my own life, you know, I started my own business. So that doesn't reclaim everything, but it gives you a lot more option, a lot more opportunity. You still have a lot to do, of course, different set of things to do. But over time, it has allowed 
layer by layer, an essentialist strategy to be implemented. And I'm still in the real world trying to grapple with this and figure it all out. But one of the (laughs) things I can do now is that when I travel, I always have a child come with me or my wife come with me. So we have these adventures now all over the place. Well, to do that, we had to do a whole series of things. We had to, you know, you layer on. So we ended up homeschooling, you know, first just one child and we decided we'd maybe do the next child and maybe we'll keep going. This is all part of this essentialist experiment. And so bit by bit, things do change and you do get to say, well, I'm going to question that piece of the puzzle. And I'm going to wonder to myself whether that over there is really necessary anymore and make different trade-offs. And within a short period of time, you feel like you're pretty different. It feels quite revolutionary because when people are saying yes, you're saying no. When you're saying no, they're saying yes. Right? There is a countercultural element of this. But what the benefit of it is, is that you start to feel differently and you start to live differently. And I'm very optimistic that you know over the years, there's going to be a new way of living that uh, we can achieve. And I certainly have no desire to go back to the world, the life I had as was. And, uh, and I think that can be true for a lot of people. So, so maybe I'd say it this way, that, that, that everyone can take a, like a standard deviation or two towards the essentialist. You know, whatever the current circumstances are, maybe you can't go from one outlier extreme to the whole other outlier extreme straight away, but, but maybe each year you can take one standard deviation over and slowly you, you find yourself, my goodness, I'm living a life that matters now. And I'm, I am in more control and I see life as a negotiation and I can make a contribution and think through all these different pieces. I think it would be a great thing to my listeners if someone from your position who has done a lot of research and a lot of studying on this to talk about maybe what's going on within our brains when we perceive this noise that we are not supposed to have bombarding us constantly, taking our deep work away, taking our attention away, our focus, you know, the conversations with our families. I mean, we could go so deep on this. There are feedback loops out there and how dopamine gets released when you're doing things that make you feel really busy. And then you get to the end of the day and realize, hey, I just felt really busy. I really wasn't accomplishing a lot by doing that. And we get into that trap of those feedback loops and staying in emails too long, those sort of things. I'd love to know what your research has led you to as far as what that is doing to our brain and what screens are doing to us since we have them in our face so often. What is that really doing to our society? Have you found through your work and how is that changing the way we think and act? I used to think it was a metaphor of addiction. You know, we're sort of addicted to our phones. And, I, and now I am confident it really is addiction in the same way as, you know, in the past we may have had an Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I can really imagine a future in which somebody, you know, has a sort of, I don't know if it's a technology uh, anonymous or something equivalent where people, you know, this need to be locked in and, and connected and the latest thing and the latest text and the latest email and this is the way to go is, I mean, a Time magazine reported that the average person checks their phone 150 times a day. That's on average. And, and yet at the same time as I share that, I, I'm not yet a believer that the answer is to become a Luddite, that we simply say, well, technology, we, we just got to throw it all out. I mean, the utility of technology is extraordinary, right? Like what we can do, the, the, the potential for good is also immense. No, absolutely. And so, I mean, here we are having this podcast, right? It's, it's, you know, one does not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The, the thing that I've learned is that technology is a poor master, but, but a great servant. So that's where we have to say, look, I do not want to be owned by this. 
I want to live my life by design. And technology seems to work in the other way, where it pushes us into the default role. And we're just reacting to the latest update and the latest email and the latest text and the latest thing. And there's a space for that, but we can't outsource the executive function of our brains to email. Right. So I recommend it from a tactical point of view. I would just say to people, make sure that you don't use email as your to-do list. That's the thing. You've got to come up with your prioritized list yourself and keep coming back to what is what's important now, what's most important now, and, and have your own selected list. So I use the journal as my technology of choice. I love what it can and what it can't do. Delight in having a place that isn't distractible, that I can pause in, I can reflect in, I can dream in, I can plan in. And, and I, I do keep a journal now. I mean, I, I don't think I've missed a day in the last six years, and I've probably not missed very many days in the last 15. Wow. And it's become a more important part. So it takes more of my life now each day than it used to. But I think you start very small even there. I, I recommend that people keep a journal. They say, don't, the first day you keep a journal, that you don't write two pages because right. then that's fine the first day, but the second day your life hasn't adjusted. So it doesn't have the hour necessary for that or the half an hour. And so it's overwhelming day two, so you don't do it. So by day three, you're now discouraged because there's no way you've got time for day two and three. And so that sort of ends before it's begun. So I recommend that people write a journal one sentence, and they're only allowed to do one sentence for a long time, like certainly for, certainly for 20, 30 days. You're not allowed to write more than one sentence. Per day. And so you keep it per day because you feel like writing more. Of course you do, but you limit yourself. You say, yes, but I've got enough juice to do that in and with more besides write one thing that was important today just one thing that mattered to you and then write another one the next day and another one and you just do consistency for that full sort of 20 30 days and then okay if you want to write write a little more fine you get you know maybe you write two sentences three sentences build up and the key though is don't miss a day right just keep the habit going keep it alive and let me share one of the reasons I feel so strongly about that as a mechanism, uh, this idea of short but regular, is that uh, both of my grandfathers have passed away now. And in both cases, I was either with them right, you know, either there right after they died or right before they died, I was, I was with them. And I had these comparative experiences. So one of my grandfathers, when he died, lived in the US. And so I was the only person, member of the family who lives over here at that time. And so I was there going through all of the things you left behind. And I mean, this is a very essentialist kind of experience, in fact, because you get to reflect on what matters and what doesn't. And, and what I really observed is that what's left behind is nothing, just extraordinarily nothing. Because most of the stuff of our lives only has meaning because we're in it. You know, even like all the relationships of our lives, most of them don't even know each other. And so suddenly we're trying to even invite people to, you know, to come to a funeral and we're like, well, we don't even know who does he, who are these people? Who, how would, because he, that was all inside of him. And so there's no context. So even though we had a relationship with him through all these years, you just don't have a real day-to-day -day sense of what was going on and who's important. Compare that to my other grandfather who, um, right before he died, I spent some time with him and he pulled out a journal, one single book that he'd written in for 50 years. He'd written a sentence, not every day, but a sentence or two every couple of days, every few days for 50 years, right? A single book. There it is, priceless. I got a copy of it 
That is just what I'm talking about. So that idea of very long, long-term perspective, I think can be very profound. Now, I don't do one sentence a day. I do a lot more than that now. I mean, I really like write a lot and, and keep a record. I'll go through a journal every every couple of months now. I'm probably going through it, certainly every three months. But my point is that is a habit that helps you to reflect and to pause and to think. And now that it's been a few years, it is pretty powerful. Because now when I go back, look over what's not even really that long term, but longer term than the minute to minute, second to second email exchanges, I can see that some things matter so very, very much more than other things. What a gift you have of being there with your grandfathers right at that time. I mean, some people don't even, you know, never had a chance to meet their grandfathers or they weren't there at that time. But then not only that, but to be able to see the example that your grandfather left of writing in a journal for 50 years. I mean, that's incredible. And you have that. I mean, you have that to be able to look back on. That's, that is just amazing. And just the fact that you're encouraging us to write a sentence a day. I, I love that because your whole idea is don't stop. Like, don't miss a day. Don't stop because you will get frustrated. You will get, you know, and then you put it to the side and you're like, oh, it's been six months since I did that, but maybe I should get back into it. You know, it almost makes me wonder if what we've gained through the Industrial Revolution, and and I know the answer, everyone, when I say this, they're going to say a resounding yes. But I don't know, to some degree, whenever I ask this question of, was it worth it, what we gained because of what we lost? I know you can't quantify that, but it almost makes me ask, was it really worth what we gained? I'm conscious of of the risks of nostalgia and how that can make us believe that things were different or better than they were. Sure, sure. But I will say this, when I ask groups when I'm speaking at you know conferences, I'll say, okay, what did we gain? Yes, even in this last 10-year phase that we're talking about, this, this last historical block of information overload to opinion overload, what did we gain? And people will say, okay, well, we gained access to information, which is clearly true, right? Access right. to almost any kind of information, any time we want. Okay, so mobility. We can do whatever we're doing from wherever we want to do it. Uh, you know, so I, I don't have to be in a particular office or we don't have to be together in a certain place. We can do this from anywhere. So mobility is important. Accessibility. People can access us from anywhere. OK, so that has certain advantages. OK, so that's on the upside and the downside. I say, OK, so what did we give up? And here are some of the actual answers people have shouted out, you know, as we're having this live conversation. Life, <laughs> my life, freedom, uh, space quality relationships. And then the pivotal point is weigh those two things. Uh, On the one hand, mobility, accessibility, information. On the other hand, life, freedom, the quality of the quality relationships. That makes us, makes me wonder whether we really have made a fool's bargain. Right. That maybe we really have given up a great deal more than we have gained of the things that matter. You know, these are not easy things to grapple with. This is a a big deal. And I'm still grappling with them. You know, I still, the more I've gone into essentialism, the more I want to go into it, the more I want to share it with people, with a broader audience, and the more I want to live it, particularly the latter, actually. I just find myself going, yeah, you haven't figured this out yet. You haven't done well enough at this yet. Keep going. It gets richer over time. I, I never regret it. You know, every time I make a new step and I go, okay, I'm reclaiming this piece. I never look back and go, oh, I wish I hadn't bothered with that. <laughs> right. Uh, That's such a good point. It gets better and better. That's such a good point. 
I'd love to know what your rituals around essentialism look like, how you stay focused the way you do now compared to maybe the way you did before, your non-negotiables, things that other people may look at and think, oh, that's kind of a little different or odd, but you know deep down in your core that you are way better for it. You you mentioned a phrase a second ago, I I don't want to go back to the way that you used to be. I'm paraphrasing here. You said, I don't want to go back to the way it was. I don't want to back the way I used to be. What are some things that you know deep down in your core have changed? Again, the non-negotiables, things you're radical about. There's a few and they're growing, but you know, one thing is every single Monday night is a family night, no exceptions. That's been true for 16 years now. Sunday, I will not work on Sunday. Just have to have a day that I'm not doing that. First thing in the morning, wisdom literature must be first. Don't let anything else get in the way of that. In the morning, for me, it's for me, it's scripture. I mean, I've right. got to be, and not just me, but have each of the children trying to do that too and encouraging that. And it changes the feeling and it's marvelous. My wife will read the classics to the children. And so that, that also gets you into this pre-industrial age mind of where character mattered more, family relationship mattered more, and you have this reawakening. And and so all of our children, four children, are just riveted every night and using their imaginations. And, and there's a certain feeling about that. It's different, certainly, than when we all go watch a movie together or even just do other things. There's something very essential about that moment. I think about um, one of my favorite times of the day is the last thing at night for me uh, is writing a journal. And this is a, a really important moment to reflect on the moments of the day. What has been key? What has been important? What do I think will matter, not just a year or two down the road, what do I think has happened today that will matter a hundred years from now? That's one of the justifications of writing a journal is that it it really outlives you. And so trying to think about that, and, and I've learned over time that things I thought were important haven't lasted even five years. When I go back and read a journal from five, six years ago, I'm, I'm surprised at which things I just don't care about anymore. So already it's nothing. Already it's passed away. It was fleeting. Right. But there are moments in there. There are key things that I've captured. For example, uh, in detail story of me playing a game with one of my daughters and what the game was. She was very young at the time. And so it's, a, it's just a playful wrestling sort of game. But I had it in enough detail. And I thought that still matters to me and 10 times more important than anything else I wrote that day. And so with, you know, when we talk about highest performance, there is a subtle distinction between a sort of type one high performance and type two high performance. Type one high performance is doing something superbly well that doesn't really matter. And then there's doing something superbly well that matters immensely. And so there's a distinction there that I slowly am learning over time. And I think these, it's building routines, not just routines that increase one's efficiency or increase just even basic productivity. It's not just, you know, these routines should be built not to help you get more things done, but more of the right things done. We wake up early as a family. We actually wake up our children sort of around 6.30, uh, which isn't so early, but we put into their hands, even if they're sort of still just waking up, we'll put some sort of wisdom literature into their hands, like a, a book that they need to be reading, scripture or something else. And my one of my daughters just talked about this, about how 
she's come to enjoy it. But at first it was like, okay, well, I've got to read this for 10 minutes. And now she looks, she says she looks, the time passes quickly for her. And so this is how she's waking up is, is connected to something. Think of how much better than that is than waking up uh, with the phone. That's so much better to have wisdom literature wake you up in the morning. Gosh, that's so good. And I'll ask a question here, and I won't hold you to this answer because I'm sure it could be variable, but I know it's hard enough, as we had talked about previously in the show, to get people to stop and write in their journal. You know, earlier in the show, you had suggested to us to not take on this giant task of having to journal for so long every day, but write one sentence down each day that, you know, is profoundly important to you and just do that for a very long time. I just, that's probably one of my biggest takeaways that I got from your your episode here. How often, though, are you finding that you yourself personally, it's, you know, it's hard to get people to write in the journal, period, much less go back and look at previous journal entries because there's just so much. How often are you going back and actually looking at those old entries? Is it something that you you build in some sort of a system? Yes, yes. At first, it was by chance. And even now, I feel like there's this untapped asset that I want to develop better routines with. But once when I every time I complete a journal, which happens almost exactly every 90 days, I sit down and go through everything and try to capture well out of these moments, what were the most important moments? What is the news in my life? Uh, It's very easy in a email to email, reaction to reaction approach to life to miss the news. And so, so yes, I hold a personal quarterly offsite. And the, one of the most important things one can do in that is, is capture the news. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this, this idea of capturing the news. To understanding the life of an essentialist and the role of journals, journals, journalists, it's to be a journalist in one's own life is to capture these moments. Just like we were discussing earlier, this is this one line at a time can be sufficient to start connecting the dots so that you can start to notice the news between the lines of your life and not miss it. I think it is very possible to miss the news in our life for months and years and decades at a time. And all we need to do for proof of that is to look at people who come to the end of their lives and discover that they missed it. To discover life passed them by. They can even high performance people. I just got an email from somebody who spent his life high performance career, CEO of the firm. I've got a lot of respect for what, what he did professionally. Actually, what he was saying is he said, he said, I just watched the, uh, the, the Steve Harvey episode that I had done where we took someone and took them on a essentialism life makeover. He said, I wish I'd had you to talk to me years and years ago. He said, once I was retired, I think I said for the first time, somebody said to me, you have to come and do this thing. And he said to them, thought for a while, and he turned to them and he said, I don't have to, and I'm not going to. He said, I think that was the first time I've ever said it. (laughs) Wow. And I bet it felt great too. You know, there's so many stories I hear, you know, I'm sure you're getting them left and right because of your work, but so many stories I hear of people who regret more the things that they didn't do and didn't build into their life, like we're talking about here, than actually all of the things together that they accomplished. And what a you know, I'm, I'm the older that I get, I'm still still a young guy, 35 years old, but the older I get and the more of my older clients that I work with, I start realizing that a a wasted life, you know, however you define that, it could mean different things for different people. But I read a, a book years ago by John Piper called uh, Don't Waste Your Life and it's a wasted life. 
is incredibly, you know, I'm incredibly fearful of that. And your work and others out there that are doing very similar things to help us get this noise out of our life and screens out of our face is, I think, years from now, we're going to look back and go, wow, that was a neat idea, it seemed at first, but what a tremendous wealth of wisdom it was uh, when when we learn how to build it in. So thank you so much for your work, uh, Greg McCown. I know, you know, we want to get people, the book, your book in their hands. That would be my aim and my mission. If I can do that for everyone listening, that would be great. Where can we steer more traffic your way to find out more about you, your writings, uh, your books, all of that? Uh, I know you, you probably can't be found a lot of places out there because you do with such an essentialism type lifestyle, but where can we best find you for those wanting to connect? I think that gregmcewan.com is a place that we just, we were very careful in curating just not too much stuff on there, but but as we have things that we that I think are worth sharing and um, you know we, we add things onto there, and so I think that's a, that's as good a place as any. That is great. Well, thanks so much for your time here on the Success 101 podcast. I could go on and on about this. And gosh, your episodes on the Steve Harvey show for the listeners out there who have not seen, you know, I think they're all on your website now. I know I've been getting them in your newsletters, but I think they're on the website, but it's just great. The essentialism makeovers, the things that you're doing that could seemingly just be such simple everyday things is, are the things that are so hard for us to build in. And you think it's crazy for someone to need to coach you through doing less, right? I mean, you think that would just be a natural thing. You could just do less when you put your mind to it. But in today's world, it's just such a tough, tough thing to do. And so I appreciate your work. And thanks so much for the time here today. Thank you so much. Take care, Greg. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, I loved having Greg on the podcast today and hope you took a ton away from his message on getting the noise and distraction and screens out of our face as we build a more significant life toward an overall mindset of essentialism starting today. If you guys would like to connect directly with me, the best way to do that is my email, which is info at success101podcast.com, or you can catch me in the world of social media on the Success 101 Podcast Facebook page or on Instagram under the name at success101podcast. I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode and hope you keep rocking it until then.